So I want to begin this evening with two short talk on stories and then see where we go from there. Can you all hear me? Twenty years ago exactly, I was a young nun and I was in England. And it was unusual that I was at a lay, uh, lay person's house. And these people were kind of terrified of kids and terrified of Halloween. So it was like, you know, they were not going to answer the door no matter what, you know. So there was kids coming and knocking on the door, but they weren't interested. So I said, well, you know, do you mind? Do you mind? Can I play? <laughs> they said, sure, you know, there's no harm. So, I mean, I didn't have any candy or anything. I just wanted to find out, you know, I just wanted to play. So, knock, 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 knock. And I go and open the door. And uh, there are three kids. So there was a girl, I don't know, she was nine. And there was a boy, maybe he was seven. And there was a little guy, he was maybe three. And they looked at me and she opened her eyes. She said, ah, who are you? <laughs> and I said, well, who do you think I am? And she said, oh, are you a nun? And then her little brother said, nah, she's just an old woman, I can tell. You know, I was 30. <laughs> but then I looked at the nine-year-old and I said, you know, it's Halloween tonight. How can you know whether I am for real or I'm just in costume? You know, what question can you ask me? How are you going to be able to figure it out? Because everyone's dressed up in costumes tonight, you know? And so she really had to think about it. But what happened for me when I left that is like, how do any of us know we're for real, you know? How do we know that we're not just going through life in a posture, dressed up in a costume, with the various different things that we do, because we're used to doing it, we're the mom, we're the dad, we're the boyfriend, the girlfriend, we are the lawyer, we are the doctor, we're the nurse, and we're just dressed up, we're going through the motions. Where is it that we find authenticity and genuine aliveness in who we are? It's actually an incredibly profound question, and there's no end to it. It's like you can't get to the end of it and be done. It's an alive, ever-present, ever-present inquiry. You know, it's amazing. So the other funny story, which I also love, was I was living in Toronto for a while, and I was friends with the Friends of the Dharma, who was a group of people who catered mostly to the alphabet soup group. So their lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community were mostly part of this group. And as it happened, because, you know, the circumstance is weird, we tried for months to schedule a day long. And the only day that was available in months was coinciding with the Toronto Gay Pride. Okay? So they had a day long, which was fine. We had a day long, it was fun. So at the end of the day long, some of the people who were on the retreat said, would you like to walk to the Pride, which was just like a block and a half away from where the venue was. 
So being cheeky, I said, okay, let's go. But which one of us is in the back? And he looked to me and he said, listen, honey. He said, we are all born naked, and after that, we are all in drag. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's Halloween. People come dressed up, and, um, and, and there's an interesting exploration about who we actually are, and how do we know, and how do we develop that, and and allow ourselves to come into the fullness of that. And how does that relate to this whole Buddhist practice of letting go of who we are? So that's what I wanted to talk about tonight. Both the cultivation of our sense of self and the letting go of our sense of self. Because they're both absolutely important, fundamental, and both need care and attention. So when we're growing up as little kids, you know, we need to know what family we're part of. We need to know what group we belong to. We need to begin to get a sense of who we are. And there's a whole process of development. And so the, the people here who have studied psychology will have the different maps that, 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 that list the different developmental stages that are needed. And, um, and then as adolescents, then we have to come to terms with our bodies turning into um, adult bodies with sexual sexuality that comes to maturity and then we have to kind of work with well what is our sexual orientation and it's important to know what that is and it's also important to watch and see as it changes, if it changes, how it changes so that we are comfortable in our own skin and who we are as human beings you know? and it's important to understand our family and it's important to have a sense of you know, what are our relationships with our family? You know, how what happens when you just hear the word mother? You know, does your system go into seizures? Or is there a sense of peacefulness? Or is there a sense of knowing where you belong? And it's not that one of these things is right and another one of these things is wrong. But who we are is very profoundly shaped by our family. And if our relationship with our family is horrendous, it is going to affect virtually every part of our life until we come into some level of peace and closure and resolution with that. And so, and for many of us, it's decades of attending and inquiry and patience and forgiveness and kindness and coming to terms with whatever has happened so that we can come into a place of real, genuine peacefulness in, in relationship with our family. Because for some, it's just not at all straightforward. You know? We didn't have the holding or the caring that we needed. And so as adults, then we are left to pick up the pieces and, and um, take responsibility. But it is our responsibility. You know, so after the age of maybe 18, it's our responsibility. You know, so it doesn't matter the kind of conditions that we were born into. You know, that's past, and now it's our responsibility to take that and use that and and compost that and and allow that to be the place 
It gives us access to our depth, to our understanding, to our passion about who we are. We have to know what drives us. We have to know what motivates us. We have to know where our passions are. We have to know where we numb out, where we space out. And that's not as a, a kind of a, a, just as a meditator. That's as a, as a full embodied human being in this world manifesting, you know? We need to know who we are and what it feels like to rest in our own skin. We need to know that. And find a way of peace, finding a way of being at peace with that. And for myself, you know, I was hell-bent and determined in meditation. And, you know, I was one of the people who felt, you know, that meditation was an absolute magic wand. And you'd go, voop, voop, and everything would vanish. I had this vision, you know, that if you meditated hard enough and had enough realization long enough, then everyone would love you all of the time. And it's like, it was really a shock to realize that the city is not quite like that. And so, and then furthermore, you know, it was quite a, a, a shock to realize that I was using the meditation to avoid feeling some of the things that I needed to feel about myself as a person. And then to learn how to stop doing that in order to come into current time with who I was and to decompress some of the layers of compression that had gotten stuck and stuffed and stored and whatever so that I could actually feel what it was that I needed to feel. And I was flabbergasted, you know, that after 20 years of meditation, there was still quite a significant amount of personal developmental work to do because I thought that it would naturally just happen through living a virtuous and skillful life and applying meditation. And in my case, that was not true. I needed to bring specific, careful attention into areas of development that had fissures or fractures or was somehow fragile and learn how to work with that in order that I could come into current time, into present time. You know? And that's a whole story about what that was and how that worked and what I did and all the rest of that. But it was a huge part of my life. And even now, you know, still, 30 years of meditation, 22 years of being a nun, there can be times when something knocks me and I'm right back into a regressed state and I'm back into the experience of the consciousness of a, of a child, you know. But what I've learned is, is that the fact that I can respond to that, that that's actually what I'm dealing with, rather than superimpose this idea that I've been meditating for all these years and I'm a nun and I've been this and that and I teach and all the, you know, all of that bullshit, the image of what I think I am, if I'm just with the fact that I'm navigating a consciousness of a very, very young child and respond in a way which is appropriate and kind, then it can shift very quickly. But if I keep on an image, I am a nun, and I've been a nun for this many years, and try and use that costume as a way of dealing with this freaked out kid. It can take days, it can take weeks, it has taken months to try and get to the bottom of it and have it shift. You know? So the question of authentically who are you 
There's no joke in the question. And if I take myself to be a nun, what does that mean? Does that mean that I hold this as a persona that I project? Or does this mean that at any instant I am willing to completely dismantle in order to be totally present in what's happening? What does it mean? So I know where liberation comes from. And I know where the sense of safety comes from. The perceived sense of safety comes from holding on to an image. You know? Being cool, being known, being safe in something that's familiar. So, you know, in my own path and in my own practice, there's been a large part of really learning how to just rest into my own skin. And part of that has been to be able to be present with the shifts and the changes that have happened and watching things dissolve and having the ground to sustain that. And so that leads me to the second part, which is just the element of working with this in terms of practice, okay? From a meditative perspective, the sense of self is something that does not have an inherent existence, okay? It does not um, exist solidly independent from other conditions. It's constantly arising depending on the conditions around us. So who I am with Mary is different than who I am with you and who I am with Lord and who I am with Noah, who I am with Gabrielle. You know, who I am with each of you changes slightly depending on my relationship with each of you. Okay? It doesn't exist as a fixed independent entity separate. It's lovely being with Annie Pomo. It's not that often that I spend time with nuns. But nuns have their whole other thing that happens for them, you know, which is interesting to watch this arise into mind and see how that experiences and see how things shift and change. Okay. So when we look at this in terms of meditation, we look at this in terms of practice, one of the frames that are really helpful for looking at the way we view ourselves is the five aggregates. So the five aggregates are the aggregate of body, the aggregate of feeling, the aggregate of perception, the aggregate of formations, and the aggregate of consciousness. Okay. Now, when we look at just the first aggregate, body, you know, how many of us are self-identified with our gender? You know, how many of us are self-identified with our shape, with our hair color, with our height, with our ethnicity? Okay. This is all related to our body. And yet, you know, there are some people for whom gender is something that's not fixed. It changes. Or they feel like they're born into a body and it's the wrong one. They feel like they should have been in another one. So their internal sense of gender is one way, but their physical body is another way. Sexual orientation for some people is also not fixed. And I've even experienced some people for whom ethnicity is not fixed. They feel totally identified with one ethnicity, and then after a while it shifts, it changes. So we have all kinds of ideas and images about who we are based on our body. And very, very strongly identified with, this is my body, it belongs to me, I own it. And I have the right to do whatever I want with it. And yet when we come into right relationship with our body, it's constantly shifting and changing. Constantly. You know, from one minute to the next minute, each breath is like a snowflake. It's, it's crystalline. 
It's absolutely unique compared to every other breath. Every moment in our body is unique. The <coughs> sensations, the pressure, the experience, it's totally unique and it's constantly changing. It's just that most of the time, the way our attention is focused, we don't see it. It seems like it's the same. But then if we have snapshots over time, where we see what it was like when we were babies, and then when we were toddlers, and then we were adolescents, and then in our early 20s, and then our 30s, and then we get 40, and then things start to drip and to droop and to swell and to shift, you know, and it's like, you know, the whole thing is moving, and it's like, where, how, what's going on here? You know, there's a rapid descent to the floor. <laughs> you know, this is body. You know, or hair starts growing in weird places or falling out in, in good places and it starts turning gray, you know. You know, it's always funny with my mom, my dear mom, bless, bless parents. You know, she said, you're so gray. I said, well, of course I'm gray. I'm no longer three. <laughs> but you say that it's all gone. You can't see it. So there's the appearance of being much younger. Because the signs of age are not visible when you shave off the gray hair. Yeah. But this is body. And for so many people, this normal process of body is an, as an absolute ordeal. Because of the identification of how wonderful it feels or the image of what it is supposed to be like to be young. You know? And so, and so then as the body begins to age, there's a, there's a, there's a crisis to navigate because we don't have the same flexibility or endurance or capacity, memory shifts, you know, faculty shifts. And so the stronger we cling and hold on to this idea of who we are in a fixed uh, way, then the more we suffer when the natural experience of change is something that we're having to navigate. Now, it just doesn't, doesn't mean that just because you're older, you know, you're after 50, then, you know, it's finished. Anyway, and I were just staying with a couple, and he was 80, and he went out jogging for five miles every morning, you know. And it's like, well, you know, hats off to you. You know, it's fabulous. So, but there is a time when this stuff does start to kind of fall apart and break apart, and we're, when we identify as that is who we are, it's really hard, you know. The people who have the hardest time aging are the ones who have been the most healthy. Unless they have had a really strong practice where they can have the health and rejoice in the health and make good use of the health, but not cling to it as who they are. You know? So there's body. And then there's feeling. And this feeling is not the feeling of emotion. This is the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling. And most of the time, we... Um, you know, we have strong opinions about the kind of feelings we want. You know, we want to feel good. We don't want to feel bad. And so, you know, when everything is going well, when we have the feelings that we want, when there's a lot of pleasant feeling, we feel, yeah, I'm, I'm on it. You know, I'm on the money. My practice is great. And when there's a lot of unpleasant feeling, we feel like, I've lost it. Things are not good. But feeling comes and goes. It's not who you are, and it's not your essence. It's not what you're made of. And so when we identify success as as pleasant feeling, you know, we are up a creek without a paddle. Sooner or later, the tide is going to shift. And when it shifts, then we're out at sea. 
you know, because we've completely identified who we are with having a certain kind of feeling. But feeling comes dependent on contact, not dependent on personality or character development or um, wisdom or compassion. It depends on contact. You know, so sometimes we have things that happen that you know hurt, or we experience loss, or you know friends disappear, somebody gets sick. That's not an indication that something's gone wrong. That's just that, that's life. And so when we know that there's nothing wrong with life. There's nothing wrong with me because of life. Then it just helps another layer of just relaxing into our own skin, into our own experience, and and, and being able to meet something with with care, compassion, and respect. So the next level has to do with perception. And perception is like, you know, this is red, this is black. Maybe that's even too complicated. This is a shape. There's front ground and background. Perception is the initial cognition of something. And then the next thing is the labeling or the stories or the associations that we have with it. So perception and then mental formations, they are together. One gives rise to the other. But this is all the ideas that we have about ourselves, about how things are supposed to be, how they're not supposed to be, what is good, what is bad, you know, what is right, what is wrong, who is the right candidate to win the election. And what happens if the wrong candidate wins the election? You know, when I think like that, my heart just goes crash. You know, I don't feel a lot of comfort when I think the wrong candidate winning the election. You know, this is perception. This is mental formation. This is the way I have attached or identified with ideas. And we have them about ourselves. We have them about each other. We have them about the world. We have them about the family. We have them about everything. And formations come and go. And there's an enormous amount of view in our mental formations. Attaching to who we think we are. You know, something happened not too long ago where somebody who I'm very close to disclosed to me that he was voting for the candidate I have no confidence for. And I went into shock. (laughs) You know? Really, shock. You know? It wasn't mild surprise, I was in shock. Somebody that I thought I knew that well, you know, was that close to? Very interesting. I had no idea. Not that this was his political uh, view, but that this would have had such a strong impact on my sense of things. It's just amazing. Now, one of the ways that we have a lot of perceptions about ourselves, you know, we have an idea about ourselves. And oftentimes the idea that we have about ourselves comes about through a mixture of all of our family story, our personal experience, and the kind of habits that got solidified. And sometimes the ideas that we have about ourselves are not very kind or supportive or encouraging or helpful. And most of the time, those ideas are very inaccurate. 
you know, the, 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 the Buddha does not speak to people in ways that cuts them into pieces, disparages them, slanders them, puts them down, punishes them, vilifies them, makes them idiots. The Buddha does not speak that way. And so when we have voices like that that are going on in our own heads about who we are, we need to see that for what it is and wake up to that and say, you know, this is a perception, it's a thought, it's a story. It's not the truth. The truth speaks itself in ways which is wise and compassionate, encouraging, which sees the beauty in everyone and everything. It's not stupid. It's not naive. It doesn't bypass places where there may be some areas that need encouragement or work. But it doesn't take the whole picture and reduce it to the one small thing that's a weakness and focus and fixate on that. That's not truth. And that's often the way we relate to ourselves. You know, it was an amazing moment that I had with my father. I came back because the um, fire, I I was out of my hermitage for a while because the Waldo Canyon fire was very close to where my hermitage is and I was staying away so that I could stay clear of needing to evacuate and also stay clear of the smoke. And when I came back, I learned that a very dear friend of mine was very sick. He had liver cancer and had metastasized. And because my father had had prostate cancer and had done an enormous amount of research, he had a, a number of things that he felt were particularly helpful for cancer. But he didn't have the energy to call my brother's friends and to tell him about it. And I remember speaking to him, and he said, I feel like a failure. And I heard him say that, and heard him really believe that, that because he didn't have the energy to reach out to somebody who was dear in the family, that he felt like a failure. And I said, Dad, when you don't have the energy to do something, it's not the same as feeling. You know? When you see somebody who is disabled, they don't have the energy to walk, it's, it's not a feeling. It's the reality of their limitation. You know? But he really believed that that was the case for him. That was actually truth. So each of us needs to become really familiar with the stories that go on in our head, the things that we tell ourselves, the kinds of ways that we form who we are, and begin to discern which of these things have elements of truth in them and which of them are not worth listening to. You know? In fact, some of them are so unuseful that it's really important to like, be vigilant to watch out for when they're present, so that we are not in any way being influenced in a subliminal way by their presence. Because it's just, it's toxic, nasty stuff. So when we've got all of this going on in our systems, you know, the ways in which our body and our feelings and our perceptions shape who we are, We need practice. We need meditation. We need a frame of reference that is able to work with all of this stuff 
and respond in a way which is right, skillful, compassionate, kind. So if stuff is going on, we don't need to get out a hammer and smash it to pieces. You know? We've got these tapes going on about I'm an idiot, I'm no good, I'm useless, I can never succeed. Or, or whatever our tapes are. You know, I don't know how, what language they shape themselves for you, you know? What your particular words are that go on in your own head. But we need to know that this stuff arises. It comes because it's conditioned. When you receive it in awareness, it does not get stronger. Nor does it, um, nor does, do we go into some kind of a strange bypass because we're not feeling it. It is allowed to be there and release the energy that it has by itself. Practice, meditation practice, is completely designed to both illuminate all this stuff and to give us a perspective that allows us to meet everything and respond to it in the right way. So if you turn a corner like I do occasionally and find out that you're in a regressed space and you're two years old, you can bring forward the kindness and the care and the interest to take care of this little person that's just totally freaked out. You know? Or if there's some kind of a view that's going on that you're hopeless or that you're never going to change, then you can respond to that with the understanding that that's a view. That's not the truth. One of the ways that people protect themselves is that rather than feel the tenderness of where we're at, rather than feel the hurt of where we're at, one develops all kinds of secondary strategies. To be cool, to be tough, to be super smart, to be completely knowledgeable. So rather than just stay present with something that hurts, we go into secondary mode of trying to appear as if we've got it all together. Because the hurting is so excruciating, it is hard to just be with that. Sometimes it's not hurting. Sometimes it's just vulnerable. You know? It's just vulnerable. I'm going to share a little story, another story. And then I'll stop and we can have questions and discussion. How many of you know my personal story and what I came out of when I left England? One, two, three, four, five, a few. A few handful. Okay, so for the rest of you, you know, I've been a nun for 22 years now, and living in a community that was a magnificent community and extremely well-supported. And all kinds of stuff went down that was rather unsavory, to say the least. I mean, I think that really is quite an understatement. And with very little um, preparation, I left England and I came to the United States. But what happened actually left quite a residue, and it took quite a significant time for me to process. Like, well, I'm still not completely finished in these three years, okay? So, I was sitting in a a retreat, inside dialogue retreat, with a monk. I didn't want to do this with this monk, but the monk asked me, and it was towards the end of this inside dialogue retreat, and I decided I'd be willing to do it. So this monk had had nothing to do with the actual story of what had happened. He wasn't present at the monastery, nor was he involved in any way. He was a monk, okay? So he's a monk, and he wears yellow robes, and he's got a shaved head, and he's sitting across me. I knew that he hadn't had anything to do with it, so conceptually, I was not confused. 
that this person had not been involved in any way with what had happened. I sat down, I looked at him, and I went into a full-blown trauma response. I was shaking, I was crying, I was choking, my body energies were just going absolutely bananas because I was sitting across from a monk. And what had happened to me with some monks had been sufficiently unfortunate that there was enough of an impression that lasted that sitting next to another monk evoked memory, perception, body feeling, experience in a such a way it was not volitional. I had absolutely no control. It was just actually something that was happening. But the practice was to stay with what was arising. He was watching this. He knew the story of what had happened after he had arrived or before he had arrived. He was watching me do this. And then I was able to articulate where I was at and what was going on with it. So rather than conceptualize or blame or make a story or create a persona, I just sat there with the whole process of shaking and crying and all of it until I could put language to what was going on to fill him in with where I was at. So I was tracking it and communicating it to him. And what he said to me, he said we, we did this for a while and it was quite amazing because we got through it. And he said to me, he said, Sister, you know, thank you so much. He said, since I arrived at the monastery, the sisters have been talking to me about how painful it has been, but I never saw the pain. This is the first time that I actually saw the pain. And I understand now. Thank you. So, when we have the ability to not put on a costume, to not dress it up, to not be any way different than how it is, sometimes what happens is miraculous. Understanding, release, insight. But what is required is to dismantle all the perceptions that one has about oneself and what's appropriate and what's suitable in order to do that. To just enter into the space and be excruciatingly vulnerable and present with it without overexposing oneself so that I didn't feel like I was at risk. But I was tracking where I was at and moderating it and presently articulating it. It was amazing. It was amazing for both of us. So that little three-year-old and what he said, how do you know you're for real? Is no joke of a question. And what does it take for any of us, where we're at, to fully be who we are in the full expression of our humanness and the dissolution of our identification? So this is my reflection for this evening on Halloween. Where does it land with you? Yes. So, a question, just from your experience, as you came into authenticity with yourself and you decided to take robes at some certain time in your life, like, what did that feel like to you? Like, 
finding your true calling or nature or place that you felt that you belonged and stepped into one life into another life? What was what was that transition like? Felt me like somebody took me by the scruff of my neck and said, "You go and do that and stay there until I tell you to do otherwise." It didn't feel like it didn't feel like a choice in the normal way where you line up this, 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 and this, and you pick which one feels the best. It felt like it was the only option that I had, and nothing else had made any sense to me. So, you know, intensity has been like my middle name. You know, I'm learning how to chill out a little bit, but there was this kind of passion. It was so, it's, it was so much an absence of choice in the sense that it wasn't between this and that. It was so much every single other option fell away, and so I was. I was determined in a way that I don't know. I was just absolutely determined, absolutely determined to to make this work. Which is, you know, if you knew my personality and my family upbringing, and I grew up, you know, in Santa Monica and I've got Jewish family, you know, my father was, you know, an intellectual. If you knew the kids, it's like there's no way you'd be able to put that all together, you know. It wouldn't make any sense at all. But part of the conviction for me was because of I had been meditating for nine years and had insight, and that I had come close to death. So the scars on the back of my head are from a bear attack. Those are bear teeth marks. And all of it came together in a way where I totally got it, that the only reason why I was still alive was because of the meditation practice that I had done. And so it was like... It's the only thing I was interested in doing. Now, since then, I have been able to see that part of that was not just a mixture of conviction, but my own self-pathology, and so I've had some work to do. (laughs) (laughs) But at that point, I didn't see the self-pathology. I just saw the conviction. You had a question? I might have missed this, but you said there was five aggregates. Oh, you didn't miss it. I didn't mention it. The fifth one is consciousness. What was the fourth? The fourth one is karma formations. That's the stories that we tell about things. So body, feeling, perception, karmic formations. And, and consciousness. Okay. Yeah. Can, can, you, can, you, say? can you elaborate how the consciousness this relates to the topic of disassociation or finding the, the true self? Mm, very good question. <laughs> There's two kinds of consciousness, and I don't know the poly names for both of them, but there's the kind of consciousness that arises dependent on sense contact, and that arises and ceases with every moment. So every sense contact, there's a sense consciousness, and that arises and ceases. There's also a, a consciousness which is, seems to be pervading, which is not like that, which seems to be, pervades everything. It's kind of like, it's not limited to, to your body, it's everywhere. When meditation is able to touch that, to know that, to rest into that, you've got a totally different reference point on who you are related to all the other stuff that's arising. Okay? So it's like the shift from the weather to the sky. You know? It's the shift from the streams and the rivulets into the ocean. It's, it's the movement from the sense of individual into a sense of something which is beyond time and space. It's absolutely not limited to the confines of your body. And it's not limited to 
any of the other normal things that you identify with, body, feeling, perception, ethnicity, orientation, none of that. It's absolutely huge and it's in all directions. When you can touch into that consciousness, that gives tremendous perspective on all the other stuff that we have to deal with. Because we can see that this stuff is like the surf. You know, sometimes the surf is up, sometimes it's flat, and it ain't the same as the sea. It's not separate from the sea, but it's not the same as the sea. And when you know the depth of the sea, you're not agitated by what's going on in the surface. When you know how to access the depth of the sea, then the storms can be really intense. You're fine. So the irony, which for me is an irony, is this excruciating vulnerability, which nobody wants to feel, is a portal to this expansive, all-pervasive awareness for which there is safety and nothing can harm it. It's exquisite. Very ironic. Is that your question? Yeah. Mm. Yes, please. When you talk about the dissolution of identity, I guess sometimes I feel sort of like a void within me that I am somewhat undefined. Mm -hmm. I feel like that can be both pleasant and unpleasant, you know, pleasant in the way I'm not thinking about sort of the second sense of consciousness that you were just talking about, and unpleasant when I'm holding the first one, and I find a lot of, like, fear behind it. Did you experience that at the beginning? I guess you how did you deal with A lot of what I had to deal with was a um, quite profound commitment to dissociation which I needed to recognize for what it was before I could actually do some of this other stuff. So I can't tell from what you're saying whether I can't place it. I don't have enough information yet. But what I do know is, this is that most of the times I've experienced the dissolution, I fought it with every single ounce of fur and fame that I could muster because I absolutely did not want to go there. Until I realized that that's the only thing that could actually help me and that that, that actually was a portal to something that was profoundly liberating. Okay? But I didn't go willingly. I was not an easy customer. I went fighting in every possible way that I could. I had to be cornered, you know, absolutely cornered. No possible exit for me to go through the kinds of dissolutions that I've been through. Now, having gone through some of this stuff, I now am familiar with it, and so it's not so painful. And so, you know, I can access it much more easily. And, in fact, that's an easy access for me to journey into this all-pervasive. It's just to drop body and mind, completely drop identification and journey into that. But for me, the nuances is to be self-aware as to where the kind of numbness in my system is asking for a particular kind of attention and where there is fear of dissolving. And they are different and require different kinds of application and effort. So, you know, I've, I've been 
I've been really, I've been really interested and committed in doing all kinds of work. You know, doing body work, doing psychotherapy work, doing critical work, doing all kinds of work because doing raw things. You know, I was talking with uh, somebody not so long ago, and I was saying, you know, the, the raw thing person, you know, he would rub my nose right into whatever stuff was there to deal with. You know, I didn't go to have it taken away. I went to have my nose rubbed in it so that I would know where my work was. And then having been focused on where my work was, then I knew where I needed to attend, you know. So, I, you know, I, I'm not in your skin, so I can't answer for you. But what I can say is, is that for myself, it, it's a rich process and there are many layers. And my own inability to track my, my disassociation was really very strong for a long time. And... It required um, commitment and persistence and bringing in all kinds of alternative skills to be able to get angles on it so that I wasn't doing it. And then then when I knew I wasn't doing that, I wasn't dissociating, then I would be able to know whether the fear I was experiencing was a fear of disassociation or a fear of entering into territory I didn't want to explore. So that's your question? Thank you. Yeah. Yes, please. I was curious, um, in terms of accessing authenticity and vulnerability in situations where you don't feel entirely safe, or where there are kind of expectations of you, where you might not feel that you can be fully, fully vulnerable, kind of what the balance is in terms of staying present. A really important question. Really super important question. It's not helpful to put yourself in situations where you're not feeling safe. Okay? And your own safety is going to be partially measured by your own ability to dismantle at will. Okay? So if, if you're not able to dismantle at will, whether you're dismantling because of other circumstances, that's tremendously vulnerable experience. And you need to be in a a profoundly safe experience for that to be held in a way where it's not really uh, unfortunate in terms of the results, right? So you're right, you know, when it's not safe, you don't do stuff like that. You just don't, yeah? But what can happen, or what I can experience, though I'm not, you know, I can definitely see how I can get defended, you know? And when I'm defended, I'm tough or whatever, I'm trying to do something. But when I can soften into my fear and my anxiety or my whatever's, I can tolerate the exposure and the vulnerability in increasingly less safe places. So I'm creating the safety internally by my capacity to track myself and self-regulate, rather than expecting the outer environment to be self-regulating and holding for me. Yeah. But, you know, I get triggered and I react and I tighten up and I tense up and then it takes me, I need to have some place where it feels safe in order for me to decompress what's been happening and figure out what, where I stand with it all and what is what needs of mine need to be addressed and where is my reactivity that I need to let go of. And usually it's a mixture. It's not usually just one or the other. Usually it's a mixture. You know. Did that answer? I'm very new to Buddhism. I just know the concepts that you pick up from hearing things you know, around. But one thing that I seem to really have a difficult time understanding is the concept of detaching yourself from. 
things and yet still remain present. What is a more acceptable concept in Buddhism uh, synonymous with attachment or when can when is it okay to be close to something or do you understand what I'm trying to ask? I do. Um, and I would think from a beginner's point of view, the best thing that I would recommend is not to worry about it. To figure it out from your body. You know, to try and get to a meditation place where you get a somatic sense of what that means. Okay? So, for example, here's a bell. Alright? It's a bell. Now, I can hold the bell out here. I can hold the bell in here. I can really grab hold of this bell so tightly or I can hold it really lightly. You know? I'm in relationship with the bell, you know? But depending on, like if I'm really grabbing really tight, I can feel it in my back, I can feel it in my jaw, I can feel it in my forehead, because I'm really holding on super tight. I don't need to hold on to it that tight. I can just hold on to it like that. Yeah. I still can know the bell. So, with this, it's a little bit of a weak example because it's not usually we don't do this with bells. But what happens is, is that we have something that becomes mine, you know? My body, my thought, my feeling, my car, my computer. It's mine. It's not yours, it's mine. Okay? So we're grabbing hold of it and identifying with it. This is mine. It's my thought. It's mine. But it's not just my thought. It's who I am. So we oscillate between this is mine and this is who I am. Now we don't do that with the bell. We can say this is mine, but most of us don't say this is who I am. Okay? When we do do that with our body, with our feelings, with our thoughts, with our memories, with our perceptions, with our consciousness. Okay? So in that languaging of detachment, what they're asking is not that you throw the bell away, but you're not grabbing onto it and flipping between this is me, this belongs to me, and this is who I am. So there's the observation of the body, the observation, without the identification that that is who you are and that it belongs to you. So if you switch the word from detachment to observation, how does that sit with you? A little bit better? Okay, great. Okay. Yeah, sure. But mostly what's needed is not to think about it. What mostly what's needed is to sit and see if you can begin to get the feeling of when you are identifying with something, what does that feel like? And when you're observing it, what does that feel like? And that's, that is where the answer to your question comes. Well, I'd like to close with a, um, a blessing chant. And you know, I, was, I was attending a teaching of a Tibetan Rinpoche. And you know, one of the beauties of different traditions is that there's different richnesses and imageries that we get from different traditions. And this Tibetan Rinpoche was saying that you know, when we share, when we do anything that's related to listening to the Dhamma, there's quite a lot of benefit that comes from doing that. It's really, um, it's not an ordinary thing. It's an important thing. But when we share the blessings, when we share the blessings, then it's like if you have a glass of water and you leave it out in the sun in the summertime in L.A., it's going to evaporate, you know? It's not connected to any source. But when you share the blessings, it's like taking that glass of water and pouring it in the ocean, you know? 
it's connected with a with a with source that so that the goodness of it doesn't actually evaporate. It's actually it's health. So it allows the, the blessings to accumulate and to have more 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 goodness. Now I have a, a super long one that I know in English and I'm I don't want to do that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna um, just say a few words and then chant uh, a Pali one, which is to, to bring the, the blessings of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha to all the devas that are present. So when we just sit here and we think of the effort to get here on Halloween to traffic, and you know, not to have fun with parties and friends tonight, and to sit and to listen and to, and to be uh, interested in the topic, which... Um, you know, might not be the most popular one that you can think of, or the most um, exciting one that you can imagine. And, 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 and the goodness of what comes when there's a, a possibility of opening to our own experience in a way where there's more peace and there's more freedom, not only for ourselves, but also in the way that we're relating to each other, and then in a, in a way that benefits all beings. We can take the goodness of what we've done here tonight and share it outwards with all beings everywhere. In fact, we can even pass beyond beings into everything, into the land, into the water, into the ocean, into the air, so that everything in all directions, in all world systems, receives the benefit of what we have brought together tonight. And then close with a little chat. homes and lost loved ones, for the ones who have health problems still to develop from all that has gone on, 
Blessings for love and support. Thank you.